0: A black man named George Floyd died this week after a white police officer pinned Floyd's neck with his knee. Floyd had been arrested for allegedly using a counterfeit bill to buy cigarettes, and he was unarmed. After videos of the incident came out, protesters took to the streets of Minneapolis. They clashed with police, and some looted nearby stores. As fires raged across the city last night, President Trump weighed in on the protests on Twitter. And his tweet has become a story of its own. In the tweet, President Trump said of the protests, quote, these thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd. He said that he told the Minnesota governor that the military would come to his aid. Quote, any difficulty and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. In response, Twitter did something it's never done before. It put the president's tweet behind what the company called a public interest
1: notice. They basically said it violates their rules about glorifying violence, but that because the president and his Twitter account is of public interest, that they will allow the tweet to remain online. They won't take it down. So they've put his tweet behind a screen. You have to click that screen to see the tweet.
0: Twitter blocked users from liking the tweet, directly retweeting it, or replying to it. And that move is just the latest in a back-and-forth between the platform and the president. It's a battle about free speech, misinformation, and ultimately, who's responsible for the content on the internet. Today on the show, the fight between President Trump and Twitter. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knutsen. It's Friday, May 29th. Twitter says it decided to put the president's early morning tweet behind a notice because of that phrase he used. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. That phrase dates back to 1967, when Miami's chief of police used it to describe his aggressive policing tactics. His comments and his approach sparked outrage in Miami's black community, outrage that boiled over into violent protests the following summer. Twitter said that it put the notice on that tweet based on that historical context. Earlier today, President Trump tweeted a follow-up to his original post. He said that people sometimes do get shot when there's looting, something he said he doesn't want to happen. He said his original tweet was, quote, spoken as a fact, not a statement. How big of a deal is it that Twitter put this label over Trump's tweet?
1: Huge. This is not something that Twitter has done in recent years.
0: Deepa Sitharaman covers technology and politics, and she's been following the relationship between
1: Twitter and Trump during his years in office. I guess you'd call it a symbiotic relationship. You know, Donald Trump tweets a lot. He has... What, 80 million followers? He uses it to defend himself against what he perceives to be attacks by the media and to criticize others. And so it's a really important tool for him to exert power and control. And for Twitter, this is their most famous user. (laughs) His presence brings people to the site. It's such an important relationship for the, for the company.
0: But it's also a tricky relationship. Over the years, Trump has tested the limits of some of Twitter's rules.
1: There are a lot of different examples where Donald Trump used his Twitter account to do things that people thought were in clear violation of the company's content rules. But there seems to be a moment this week where Twitter just started to enforce some of its community standards around the president. And to understand what happened, you kind of have to back up a little bit.
0: This battle over content moderation goes back decades.
1: So, for many years in US law, there's been this distinction between publishers and distributors. You think of a distributor like a bookstore, and the idea there is they can't possibly know the content of every book that they're selling, so they aren't liable for the content in their bookstore. Publisher, totally different situation. If you are the person publishing the book, you know everything in there and you are on the hook. What happens is the internet. (laughs) The internet challenges that distinction in a pretty profound way because the platforms are both, they're both publishers and distributors.
0: The question in the early days of the internet became, how do you classify these new companies that people use to post things online? Are they more like the book publisher or more like the bookstore? And that question quickly made its way into the courts. Two lawsuits in the 1990s reached opposite conclusions about whether internet companies were more like publishers or bookstores. One involved an internet provider called CompuServe and one involved a company called Prodigy. Both hosted newsletters and forums on the web and were sued over comments people posted on their sites. But in court, the two companies weren't viewed the same way.
1: CompuServe didn't moderate content. It was sort of wild and unbridled and therefore got treated as a distributor. They were not liable for the content that appeared through its service. Prodigy, on the other hand, different situation altogether. Prodigy did do some moderation. And in those cases, the court found that Prodigy was liable for some of this content because they were looking. So there's sort of this perverse incentive that appears, you know, suddenly you can see this scenario where these platforms are now being incentivized not to look for bad content. And this bothers and concerns lawmakers.
0: Two lawmakers, one Democrat and one Republican, worried that these lawsuits would dissuade companies from doing any moderation at all. They wanted Internet companies to take down some bad things like child pornography.
1: And so enter Section 230, the most important law of the Internet. Section 230 is supposed to create a shield, a liability shield for these companies to allow them to look for content. So if they find bad stuff, they're not liable for it. Giving the tech companies power to moderate their platforms and do so without invoking you know, legal repercussions. But this was long before the platforms that we know today were even around. Uh, you know, this is 1996, so Facebook isn't a thing. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is 11 years old. But in the decades since this law, what's kind of happened is the tech companies are no longer on the hook if they find something bad, but They also don't feel a ton of pressure to go looking. I mean, there isn't a legal obligation for them to make sure that they find every instance. It's a pretty broad protection for these companies.
0: So this gets established where the takeaway from this law is that these platforms are not, generally speaking, liable for what's posted on the platforms. What does that mean for the Internet industry and tech companies that are emerging from the 90s into the 2000s?
1: I mean, it's the whole game. It allows for growth and it allows for companies to emerge that are bigger, broader, and connect even more people.
0: And this is kind of where the term platform comes
1: in, right? Exactly. That's sort of the merger between being a publisher and a distributor, right? You know, you give people the chance to say what they want to say and then give them the chance to send it to as many people as possible. And so the shift to being a platform, it allows these companies to say that they're neutral. You know, oh, we're just a platform. We just allow, we facilitate conversation.
0: Why did Section 230 and the platform's role in moderating content become so controversial recently?
1: starts with Donald Trump. You know, I think prior to to the 2016 election, Section 230 was a pretty obscure law. But then Donald Trump started to use these platforms and started to post all kinds of, you know, fairly incendiary things. So you can imagine the situation that these tech companies are in in 2016. They've underinvested in content moderation. They've overindexed on growth. And then... The 2016 election happens and suddenly the person in the White House is somebody who uses social media quite often and uses it in really controversial ways. But early on, social
0: media companies like Twitter and Facebook decided that they wouldn't touch posts from the president.
1: They're like, okay, you know, people should be able to hear from their elected leaders. Um, That's fine. And then the less charitable reading of that is we don't want to anger the people who make laws about us.
0: At the same time, platforms like Twitter and Facebook were getting a lot of pressure to do more moderating generally after the rise of misinformation campaigns during the 2016 election. And so they built teams responsible for taking down objectionable tweets, banning users who violated the terms of service, and flagging posts that were obviously not true. How do lawmakers and people just kind of generally in America react to this initial move by the tech platforms to do more moderation.
1: Depends who you are, um, of course. Like, with everything in this topic, there's a subset of people who thought it didn't go far enough. And then there's a loud faction that thought that any type of fact-checking was a form of censorship. You know, who is Facebook to tell me what is and isn't true?
0: Mm-hmm. And this also seemed to split along partisan lines as well. Right,
1: right. In very general terms, the Democrats have said that these companies need to be doing more to tackle misinformation. The Republicans are very uncomfortable with the companies playing this role. They think that the social media platforms uh, don't like them, that they suppress their content, that they use their California left-leaning liberal ways against conservatives who are very active users on the site. The companies have said repeatedly that they don't do that, but nevertheless, these accusations have piled up. And that's a really important feature of the last three years because it's put these tech companies in a position where they have to calm the White House and make sure that conservatives know that they aren't out to get them. And so the companies have kind of bent over backwards in a lot of cases to accomplish that.
0: That is until this week. That's after the break. Welcome back. The decades-long debate about content moderation online came to a head this week. It started on Tuesday when President Trump made a claim on Twitter that several studies have found to be inaccurate, that mail-in voting would be, quote, substantially fraudulent.
1: And several hours later, Twitter put a fact-checking notice on it. It's pretty small font under Donald Trump's tweets. There's a little exclamation mark with a circle around it. And in blue font next to it, it says, get the facts about mail-in ballots. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time that Twitter has applied this fact-checking label to non-coronavirus related content. You know, they had a policy announced earlier this month to apply fact-checking labels. And this was it. This was the test case. Their critics of Twitter think this didn't go far enough, um, that, you know, there should have been a more clear label saying that whatever the president was saying was misleading. But the reaction from the right was, well, it was kind of pandemonium.
0: That pandemonium quickly zeroed in on one person who Trump allies blamed for Twitter's treatment of the president.
1: They called out this one Twitter employee in particular, this guy named Yoel Roth, who is head of site integrity. He focuses on spam and bots and election interference. He's not involved in fact-checking, the company says, but he did tweet some pretty critical things, we'll say, critical things of the president.
0: In the past, Roth had tweeted that the president was a, quote, racist tangerine. And in another tweet, he compared Kellyanne Conway to a Nazi propagandist.
1: And it clearly angered the White House. Kellyanne Conway went on television, went on Fox and Friends. Uh, Let's bring Kellyanne Conway, counselor, to the president. Uh, And criticized Joel Roth in in pretty personal terms and recited his Twitter handle. Go and read what he said. We fly over, you know, the racist flyover country who voted for... It's just horrible the way he looks at people who otherwise should have a free and clear platform on Twitter. Trump then accused Twitter of interfering in the election. The president also
0: accused Twitter of censorship and said that he would use the power of the federal government to rein Twitter in or even shut it down.
1: And then the White House puts together an executive order. And it's an executive order designed to limit the powers of our old friend Section 230. My executive order calls for new regulations under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to make it that social media companies that engage in censoring or any political conduct will not be able to keep their liability shield. That's a big deal. They have a shield. They can do what they want. They have a shield. They're not going to have that shield.
0: Trump's executive order calls for a reinterpretation of Section 230 and argues that a site moderating content in bad faith, such as by suppressing conservative speech, let's say, should no longer be considered neutral and could be legally liable for content that's posted there. But it remains an open question of how much this executive order could actually change Section 230.
1: From a legal standpoint, I haven't talked to any experts who think that this EO has any kind of teeth. What it does do, though, is its power lies in theatrics. It's a very powerful way of telling the tech companies that the White House will make their lives really difficult if they continue to curb or flag any kind of speech from the president. And it's a way to keep the platform companies in check. But
0: after the executive order was released, Twitter didn't back down. Just hours later, it added that notice on Trump's tweet about the protests in Minneapolis. — So what do you think is going to happen next?
1: I mean, this is not a pretty extraordinary sequence of events. You know, I've spent years talking to sources about these tech companies and their content rules. And it's just felt for years that they wouldn't do anything about what the president says on their platforms. And this is the first week that's really challenged that. I'm very interested to see if that continues over the course of the year, because this is an election year. This is a really important year for a wide variety of reasons. And if Twitter is applying these labels and checking the president over the course of of the next five months or so. I'm very curious to see how that changes the shape of political discourse.
0: That's all for today, Friday, May 29th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knutson. The show's made by Gerard Cole, Pia Gadkari, Annie Minoff, Ricky Novetsky, Sarah Platt, Willa Rubin, Annie Rostrasser, and Rob Zipko. Our show's engineered by Griffin Tanner with help from Sam Baer. Our theme music is by So Wiley. Additional music this week from Katherine Anderson, Peter Leonard, Emma Munger, and Blue Dot Sessions. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Thanks for listening. See you on Monday.